Hello and welcome to the Devon Wildlife Warden podcast, hosted by me, Emily Marbay. In this episode, I will be discussing rewilding. What is it? Why are we doing it? And how can pigs help to kickstart the process? I'll be talking to Elliot Fairs, Wildlife Warden for Doddis Coombsley, and his wife, Laura Fairs, who is the rewilding leader at Embercombe. Together, they also run Fairsley Smallholding and have been actively using their pigs to help rewild a space at Embercombe. I'll be meeting them and their, dare I say it, rather noisy, pigs a little later in the episode. Around the corner we also have COP26. I'll be talking about what it is and why it's important for the future of our wildlife as well as our climate. And of course, as usual, I'll bring you an update on the Wildlife Warden Scheme and what we've been up to here in Teambridge in the last month. The Devon Wildlife Warden Scheme is run by Action on Climate in Teambridge, or ACT for short. The idea is to have wardens in every parish or ward who can help their wildlife in a variety of ways. I'm the Wildlife Warden for Abbots Kurzweil, but we have many others and are always looking for more. We do all sorts of things, from promoting wildlife gardening and recording local wildlife sightings, to working with clubs and schools and commenting on local planning applications, and much, much more. It's all about each warden doing what they feel is necessary in their area, which lies within their comfort zone. ACT's Wildlife Warden Scheme would not be possible without the generous assistance of our donors, details of which can be found in the episode notes. Many thanks to them all. As usual, I will kick off the episode with a quick update on the Wildlife Warden Scheme, and it has been a fantastic month for training. I sat in on a Working with Volunteers session, which was hugely beneficial for me because I've started to help set up volunteer working groups in our parish. So far, we've had a rake and cake morning at our wildflower patch, and now have an upcoming weed and seed session at the orchard. Feel free to sign up to help with that on the 7th of November. Training has also been offered to our wildlife wardens on how to manage a tree and wildflower nursery, and Audrey Compton has been taking some of our wardens out on wildflower seed collection sessions. On top of that, there was a bat walk with Sue Smallshear, Dave Smallshear and Tess Frost. Those who went along got to see lots of rare greater horseshoe bats and to learn how Chudley Wild manages habitat for bats and other wildlife. We also had a talk from Kath Jeffs, who is a conservation officer with the RSPB, with a particular focus on Cyril Buntings. She spoke about the Cyril Bunting Recovery Project, including habitat management, working with farmers, community engagement and the impacts of development. The project has been so successful that Cyril Bunting pairs have rocketed from barely more than 100 in the early 90s to over 1,000 pairs in 2016. Much of this success is down to Kath's experience in working with landowners to foster an interest in wildlife. Luckily, a video of this talk is available on YouTube, so I'll include a link in the episode notes. Wild About Devon also recently hosted three webinars, one from the Devon Hedge Group on the benefits, management and how to survey these important green highways. Butterfly Conservation also hosted a talk on the importance of moths, and the impact of light pollution on their populations. And the UK Commission for Dark Skies and CPRE, the countryside charity, hosted a talk about the night sky and the importance of getting light right for wildlife. 
Fortunately for us, Wild About Devon have a brilliant page on their website listing links to the previous online events they have run, so I'll include that. There is loads to look at on there in addition to the few I've just mentioned, so do take a peek. The Devon Rewilding Network hosted a talk by Fiona Crouch, who is the Project Manager of Life Recreation Remedies, about seagrass restoration and marine rewilding. Again, there's a recording of this one available, so I'll pop it in the episode notes if you're interested in taking a gander. It is simply brilliant that wildlife wardens get access to so much training and support. It allows us to proceed with projects and ideas that we may have otherwise felt were a bit over our heads. So what else have Teambridge Wildlife Wardens been up to? Well, in Bovey, they have surveyed the flora of two churchyards and submitted records via iRecord. They made contact with the head ranger at Yarna Wood and are going to help set up dormice tunnels at the reserve. In Broadhempston, Wildlife Wardens held a wildlife stand at the Broadhempston Eco Fair. In Chudley, Chudley Wild's wildlife gardening scheme has to date engaged over 80 households throughout the town. They also hosted the Chudley Open Gardens event. The group have also organised several volunteer work parties to manage the Batfields Reserve, and this is all in addition to the bat events mentioned earlier. In Dunsford, wildlife wardens have been engaging with the local community through the parish magazine, and their most recent article featured hedgehogs. Julia has been surveying the hedgerows throughout the parish and has also gained permission to seed yellow rattle, which, just to remind you, is a parasite of grass, at the village churchyard in the hope of improving the abundance of wildflowers. In Holcombe Burnell, Kate met with her local church warden and took part in the Bats in Churches Citizen Science Survey. They found common pipistrelle bats using a yew tree and hedges. She has also continued to test the water quality of local streams for the West Country CSI project. And sadly, Kate has also been reporting sightings of dead hedgehogs on PTES's Hedgehog Street map. In Ken, wildlife wardens ran a parish wildlife gardening competition, which attracted 10 entries. The community meadow is flourishing thanks to Will, Graham and a team of volunteers as well. Wow, quite the update this month. Lots going on with the Wildlife Warden Scheme. And remember, if you are keen to get involved, it really doesn't matter if there are already wardens in your patch. We would still welcome your interest to join us and help. And now on to rewilding. What is it? Why is it useful? And how do you go about doing it? Well, it turns out the answers to those questions vary depending on who you ask. I was lucky enough to be invited along to speak with Elliot and Laura Fairs, who thought I might like to meet their pigs and learn a bit more about what they've been doing with regard to rewilding. I met them at Embercombe out near Exeter, and what follows is the chat Elliot and I had over a cup of tea, followed by an interview with Laura in the pig field. The recording was done in the field, so do excuse lapses in sound quality. It was a pretty blustery day. Elliot, thank you so much for joining us today for the podcast. Um, would you like to just take a moment to introduce yourself, first of all? Hello. Um, yeah, my name's Elliot Fairs, and I'm the wildlife warden for Dodders Coombsley Parish um, up in the Team Valley. Have been since it was first set up. Um, I worked with Audrey in helping deliver some of the initial training, um, and that's come about because previously to moving to Devon, my whole career has been based in wildlife conservation working for National Trusts, Wildlife Trusts, um, Countryside Services and things like that for about the last 20 years. So um, 
always had a passion in conservation and always worked in conservation since leaving university. Um, and that passion didn't leave when we moved to Devon. Um, it just meant that I no longer did it for an employer. I just did it for myself on my own small holding with my family and then started talking to neighbours and other landowners and school friends and that went on to the parish council and then they started asking me to comment on this and comment on that and then the wildlife warden scheme came up and it just I was already doing a lot of those things anyway so it was just a natural fit. Amazing so you've been busy in Doddis Coombsley on on your small holding by the sounds of things? Yes yeah um, yeah I'm not one for sitting still I, I get a bit bored quite easily I like starting new things and then leaving them for other people to kind of crack on with them and then I can start something else so. Yeah yeah um, and tell us about the projects you've got on the go at the moment. I understand you've been um, using some pigs. Uh, yes. Um, the, so on our small holding, we rear pigs um, for ourselves, uh, for meat. But over the years, last couple of years, we've been thinking more and more about how these pigs could serve an ecological process as well as a kind of a self-sufficiency side of things. And this spring and summer, we put our pigs out from their normal paddock where they would live. Mm -hmm. um, we've then been training them to follow a bucket into a field that we've got. Uh, and the field used to be cut for hay and we stopped hay cutting it and let it start basically grow longer and regenerate the soils. But the idea was to put the pigs in there and basically see what they did and see what happened and see if they escaped, which <laughs> they didn't do, thankfully. And they started to do what pigs did and it became pretty fascinating how quickly they could create these new habitats which didn't exist in our field and you know from an ecological point of view I could immediately see how other species were moving in and using these patches that the pigs had made and those species weren't there before the pigs arrived and it just made me suddenly go okay if we can do this here how else can we help other people do this because you know to rear pigs is quite a long process and you don't want them on your land for the whole time because you won't have much land left. So Yeah, I've, I've got friends that have pigs and I have seen the state of the enclosure yeah, so they it's, in. <laughs> so it's kind of a case of, we, you know, my wife Laura and I came up with this idea of how, how we could have a, a community group herd or a, a shared pig scheme. And we started doing some, a bit of working out some maths and thinking about the logistics. And we've spoken to a few people and there is an appetite locally to look at doing this next year. So we wanted to figure out how it would actually work from our point of view, mm -hmm. being the pig owners and the logistics of getting the pigs to and from places and the paperwork involved. Yeah, you need, a, you need permission to even yeah, transport yeah. them, don't you? You can't just move them. There's no. standstill periods and everything that goes with rearing the livestock. So we wanted to organise a trial. And fortunately, uh, my wife Laura is the rewilding lead at Embercombe. And they are just starting their Embercombe, um, their rewilding journey, sorry. And we had an opportunity to move the pigs there. And that's where they are today. Okay. And they are now helping rewild part of Embercombe in the same way as they helped rewild part of our small holdings. So. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, at this point, it's probably useful just to stop and kind of talk about rewilding a little bit. Because um, obviously you're talking about creating new habitats but with, the, with the pigs moving things around. Um, I mean, how would you, you're, you're much more experienced in the field of ecology than I am, so I'll ask you if you, put you on the spot and ask you if you can define or tell us what rewilding really means, what, what does it? Um, 
I guess the answer to that is different to different people. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the answer that I give you would be different to the answer that Laura gives you. Yeah. And the answer that I give you now might be different to the answer that I give you next year. But <laughs> right now, what does rewilding mean to me? It means... It means changing the way in which we look at managing the land, mm -hmm. changing the outcomes that we aspire to or try and create. It's about not being prescriptive. It's about not trying to control everything. It's about not aiming for a target and then reaching that target and then stop doing it. It's about letting go of control. It's about being open to things happening that you hadn't necessarily foreseen. But if those things that you haven't foreseen are still done in a natural way, then there are things in the natural world that would benefit from them that you hadn't foreseen. It's about the law of unforeseen consequences. Okay. And, and that's what I love about it. You know, when I put the pigs out, I didn't know where they were going to go. I didn't know what they were going to do. And I kind of tried to think, I was like, well, the textbooks say they're going to do this, the textbooks yeah, say they're going yeah. to do that, and they didn't do any of that. <laughs> they went and found what turns out to be some of the shallowest parts of our field, in the soil, in a kind of a slightly low runoff, and they dug that up. It rained the next day, and suddenly there were all pools and ponds. And then the next day, there were swallows coming down, taking the soil from the ponds. Now, those ponds weren't there two days previously. I had not predicted that at all. Amazing. And so, wow, okay. I can see straight away within two days how pigs benefit swallows. Yeah. And that wasn't happening before. It's a very practical demonstration yeah. of why it's useful. You just suddenly see how that ecological process of a pig being a pig and going and making a mess, actually that mess isn't a mess. It's a really crucial part of nature's processes and eco um, ecology and the systems that it works through. Mm. And there are a whole range of species that I have no idea what they're called, I've got no idea what they look like, that rely on that sole process, that without it, they aren't there. Yeah, yeah. So for me, rewilding is trying to reintroduce some of those aspects of habitat creation that are made by these animals, these pigs, these sheep, these ponies, these cattle, that we tend, not to, we tend to try and avoid because they look messy or they don't fit with the... Yeah, oh, well, yeah. you've got to... You've got to have this amount of animals to create that amount of bare ground. So just put them on and see what happens. Yeah, yeah. So does that mean that every pig farmer is a rewilder? Um, I would, to a degree, yes. But <laughs> um, I think there's a big difference between pig farming and pigs in conservation because pig farmers will have a number of animals on a location of land and they will stay there until they're ready to go to abattoir and they won't leave that land. And that land will generally get and I'm using inverted commas, trashed. Yeah, it yeah, will be yeah. ploughed up, it will be turned over, it will be a quagmire, it will be nothing but mud. Kind of overused, yeah. really. And then once those pigs have gone to the abattoir, they'll then be replaced. And that patch of land will never really recover. It will be in constant production. Yeah. Whereas using pigs in rewilding, those pigs are free to roam across however many acres, hectares, whatever unit you want. They can go wherever they want. And they're there for a short period of time. And when they've gone... They might not come back the next year. They might not come back for two years. Or they might come back the following year and stay there for longer. You don't know and you don't really need to know. All you need to look at is what they've created while they're there yeah. and go, yeah, they've done it. Fantastic. And um, we're really, really lucky to be at Embercombe today um, with your lovely wife, Laura, as well, who um, I'm sure will have a slightly different take on um, rewilding. She'd definitely have a different take. <laughs>
So I've come over to the pig field and uh, lovely Laura is here with the piggies and she has just called them and they are delightfully running over to join us. Hello piggies. Hello. Are they happy for me to touch yeah, them? Yeah, yeah. I know you've got strong teeth, haven't you? I don't have anything for you except a stroke. Sorry. Yeah, they love a <laughs> like a scratch. A scratch you like a scratch, yeah, just like my doggy. Yeah, I know. That is a very loving pig right there. <laughs> do, do we name them if we're gonna eat uh, them? The girls, or, uh... the girls did name them. So these three are all girls. So they're named. Enid, Ethel and Maud. Enid, Ethel and Maud, that's amazing. Oh, your daughter Anya's come over to join us as well, that's wonderful. Anya, which, which pig's which? <laughs> uh huh. That's amazing. So, how old are they now? Um, they are. Seven or eight months old. Yeah. Wonderful, and um, and they'll be kept until. Yeah, we're taking them uh, in sort of middle of November, so uh -huh. they and will go. So we we got them at the time of year, so that we knew we'd have them during the apple fall season. Good so idea. That, right, just before they go for slaughter, they'd get to eat lots of fattened up apples. That's, and that's probably quite a traditional and, way of doing yeah, things as veg well. scraps that come off the land. So. That's amazing. And when they, they'll be um, slaughtered, and what will you do with the meat? Do you keep it? Do you sell it? Do you... <laughs> yeah, we keep um, enough for ourselves. And yeah, one, what, so one of them belongs to a friend. Mm -hmm. And so we, they, they are paying a share of their costs of their rearing, and they will end up with the meat. So, and then the rest of it, some of it we can sell um, through our small holding, and some of it we will yeah, give to friends and family. And yeah, yeah so yeah. we generally keep one and sell one. Perfect. Yeah, that seems. I think it's pretty much exactly what um, I did with my neighbour when I yeah. had half of one of his pigs. I think. Yeah, and, and very we, delicious it is too. Yeah, we've just <laughs> we just had a bit of a look at what we've got left from last year, and yeah, that, that generally is a, a bit too much meat for a year. So okay. we have a little bit left over, so we tend to then give that all away to people we know or swap oh, it for things. That's or kind. Yeah, swap that's for good. veg or. Um, and Elliot mentioned you're the rewilding lead here. So how how did that come about? Yes. Um, so I've been here not not that long. I've only been here about six or seven months, and Embercombe has been in its current form for about 20, 22 years. And for a long time, Embercombe was a working farm, so grew a lot of veg, um, kept livestock. And a few years ago, three or four years ago, they took a decision to um, step away from food production and turn the land over for the wild. Mm -hmm. So. And for the last few years, the land has essentially been sort of left and is rewilding itself. We have had a few livestock here, a few sheep here. Um, and so I have joined the team recently to sort of take forward that work uh -huh. and um, lead on all things rewilding. And, and at Embercombe, that is about rewilding the land. So trying to... I think here the site's quite small, so I, I would say that we are using rewilding principles to regenerate the land right because the site is used by people as well so there's not necessarily the element of being able to shut the gate and leave it alone yeah so some of the rewilding principles we are applying to the land and so the pigs are a great example of that where we are 
essentially replacing a natural process that is missing from our landscape. So wild boar and other animals that root or disturb the ground are missing. Yeah. Um, and is the intention to kind of just to create a more biodiverse habitat? Overall? Yeah. So the idea is to yeah have more space for the wild things, more biodiversity. Um, but also at Embercoon, we, you know, the, the work we do here and the programmes that we run are very much about the work that people do in connection to nature. So there is also a large rewilding the self or rewilding society element. Um, so we're practising the principles of regenerating the land, but also exploring some of the questions around how we take ourselves back um, to a more wild state or away from domestication and yeah. letting go of control and um, inviting some of those questions and conversations when people come here on the programmes. Yeah, yeah. So what kind of programmes? I know it's veering off topic slightly, but I'm just yeah. thinking people listening to yeah. this might be thinking, uh, quite, well, yeah, what sort of thing are you running A there? variety of stuff, but um, the, the Embercombe work is about what we call the twin trail. So work that you do, you learn about yourself on the inside and how you then take that out into the world and take action for a better world um so we have but we also have programs about um movement dance um material crafting amazing uh, rewilding um we do experience weekends where people can come and work on the land do cooking um woodwork so it's a real broad mix of it's a uh, difficult to put into a pigeonhole what, what Embergoon <laughs> we'll just tell people if they want to learn more they can have a look at the website for yeah, that I think yeah definitely <laughs> so coming back to the rewilding then um I know I already asked Elliot his sort of definition of rewilding yeah and he was very clear that yours would probably be quite different yeah. so on that yeah. basis I'd be interested to hear what it means to you yeah so I think um if we're talking about rewilding the land then in this country in in the UK then rewilding is about um regenerating land remove re- replacing some of the lost processes um for example the, the pigs and the and the disruptors um but i think there's also this yeah this element of stepping back and, and not being so prescriptive yeah. allowing land to regenerate naturally some of that is with people you know taking interventions so i think there's a most people probably listening to this are thinking of rewilding from a you know a nature conservation point of view but i think there is also an element of rewilding where um we are looking at how people have come so far away from the wild yeah so looking at um how we have taken society and civilization to a place where we're removing ourselves and we see ourselves separately from the wild and that's you know there's a whole probably a whole nother podcast in there somewhere yeah about i think that. there is there's a, probably a whole series on yeah <laughs> on that and how we can in the world that we live in today how we can take some of those steps and yeah. reverse some of that um separation from the wild and um, and what are your kind of measures of success with the rewilding projects that you're doing here uh that's a good question I think um, at Embercombe we would say we are exploring rewilding, so <laughs> we're not going to, we don't have we're set not labels targets on it or just KPIs. Okay. Um, so yeah, it's about um, asking some of the, I think one of the things we're really keen to do here is to ask some of the more challenging questions around rewilding yeah. and try them out ourselves and share those experiences so other people can come, either come here and learn about that or we can say, well, we did this and it went really well or we did this and it went really badly and yeah. hopefully people can 
take from that what they need because some people may want to rewild their own land and they could come here and learn about it. Some people may want to learn more about why we're rewilding or more about wildlife. So um, I think here the measures of success would just be that we are going through that process in an authentic way and being open and honest about the challenges that, that, face, that we face in that process. That's amazing. Is there anything else you would like to add or talk about? Yeah, so one of the things we want, I wanted to talk about was um, that Embercombe is um, part of the Devon Wildland mm-hmm. initiative. And this is a really new um, initiative that uh, some of the other landowners in the, local, in the Teen Valley and um, the sort of Howden Ridge, we are working together to see if we can form this initiative where different landowners will join up as part of the Devon Wildland and create a wilder ridge from Mamhead through to Longdown. Amazing. And so we've got a couple of sort of core sites um, to, to start with. And we are just at the stage where we're starting to um, talk to other landowners and see if they want to join us. And the idea is to create or see if we could create a connected landscape across the ridge, across the Howden Ridge and in the Teen Valley where there are landowners who are going to work, not necessarily work together on their land, but work collaboratively in the sense of how much of this landscape could we connect up for biodiversity and for wildlife. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. We've, I've talked about kind of habitat fragmentation and, you know, how important it is for, for organisms to be able to yeah. move from one place to the yeah. other in previous podcasts. And I think, you know, that is a huge issue with the way current farming and towns cities are put together so one of the things that we um thought would be really great is to hopefully next year we're hoping we're going to do a devon wildland pilgrimage so we're going to start at one end and walk the route and see for ourselves how easy it is to walk across a rich biodiverse landscape without having to cross roads or go through settlements or houses or farms now that sounds like another podcast and um, (laughs) so the idea is to do that now and then maybe do it again in five years or ten years and see if we can create a more connected landscape so that we can work out what are the barriers in the way of wildlife so if we physically walk that then that will help us to really understand um, what some of those barriers might be for wildlife that are trying to cross that space absolutely i think that's Um, a brilliant idea and you know and that that wild land that connected landscape may offer the opportunity for some of the species that we are that we've lost in this landscape a more connected place where they could thrive so a really great example would be pine martins you know if we if there was ever the opportunity for pine martins to come back to devon would be really great if we could create a landscape that could be connected so that they are able to spread out and thrive rather than just being retained on one or two sites. Yeah, so I think the Devon Wildlands is a really um, exciting initiative and that is based on, yeah, essentially this connectivity within the landscape. So, um, and the pigs, we're sort of, this idea of creating a a roving flock of herd um, and being able to share the pigs across some of these landowner sites in the Devon Wildland is that a lot of those landowners will have very small pockets of land and they may want to have some of this disturbance that the pigs are creating, but they only want it for a short time. So it's about whether across that network we could mimic the natural processes that would yeah, be happening. because pigs would, wouldn't they? They'd move from area to area, exactly. grazing different spaces. And yeah. like, like we were talking about earlier, earlier um, Elliot's come and joined us in the field. And... Um, yeah, as he was saying earlier on, you know, when you're intensively farming pigs in one location, it just 
pretty much trashes that location and, and doesn't give it a chance to recover. Whereas, as you say, cycling them through different places can um, can add so much more value. So yeah. I can definitely see why yeah. you would want to do that. Yeah, and um, just to kind of add to that, one of the one of the challenges with pigs is that the moment they arrive on your small holding, your land, your farm, whatever it is, um, because of animal illnesses, quarantines, things, there's um, you have to do a 20-day standstill. Mm. So the minimum amount of time that you'd be able to have animals on your land or pigs on your land is 20 days. And do people need permission to have the pigs on their land? You need to have what's called a county parish holding number, or CPH. Right. Um, is that hard to get? It's not hard it's not to get, hard. but it's a it's, bureaucratic yes. process that you need to sure. go through. So. It's, it's straightforward, it yeah. just takes a bit longer than it really should. So, um, <laughs> that sounds like if, everything. <laughs> yeah, as, it's one of these things, if you're thinking of doing this, get a CPH number and then that's the hard bit done, really. It right. Is. So um, if you've got a, a holding number, a CPH number, then moving the pigs on, it's just an online movement um, that you record in advance on the move and then once the pigs are on you confirm yeah. that movement took place but I guess people doing it are getting this help and advice from you because exactly, you know yeah. what they need to do yeah. anyway so, so one of our hopes is that we kind of we're involved with helping get this roaming herd flying flock or whatever it's called set up where we can help people or clusters of people give advice and help them with logistics transporting animals give them advice on which breeds and things to buy and but also that then people, those people will know how to do it. Yeah. So the yeah. idea is that then collectively the and those exactly. people, yeah. we all get a bit better at doing it. So it's not a case of one person leads on it. It's effectively that that becomes something that is more viable across the landscape yeah. in people as well as, you know, not just on the habitat. So yeah. it's, yeah, it's hopefully with having a few people that can help with that to start with, then we can start to share that out as well. Yeah, that'd be amazing. So if anyone's listening to the podcast thinking, oh, I've got some land in that area that I could potentially do this with, then how, how would they get in touch with you? Uh, they can look at the Devon Wildland website. Great! Yeah, <laughs> or they can go onto the Embercoon website and they can get in touch with me via that page as well. That sounds or amazing. they could contact Flavio and ask for my wildlife warden details that way, so... Yeah, so through the ACT yeah, website the as well. Website, yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. I know you guys are super busy um, and I had enough trouble finding you and caused a big <laughs> enough delay to this morning already. So I will um, just check in and ask if there's anything else that you'd like to say before we finish. Um, just something that I thought I probably should have said. Um, the, the, the things that pigs are good for is not the same as what you'd put cattle on for or what you'd put sheep on for or what you'd put um, horses on for. The, the pig element of grazing and conservation is very different um what i feel and what i'm seeing that they provide that the others don't is they provide an inroad into what is very tight grass mm. habitat so on the field that we've got back on our small holding and the field here at Embercombe, they've been historically grazed by sheep and the grass is very tight there's very little bare ground and there's not much kind of diversity in the plants that are there mm -hmm. and pigs get in and they break that up they change that and we are hoping that with this disturbance that the pigs are creating a whole load of seeds a bit wind coming in a <laughs> Sorry, whole load hopefully new, we'll be lucky <laughs> um, a whole load of new seeds that are sat dormant in the seed bank in the soil yeah. itself will be disturbed yeah we should see a variety of new plants probably come through um so irrespective of the structure of the 
change, there was, should be a floral change as well, and then that should affect the yeah. insects and yeah. everything that go with it, the whole food chain. So, yeah, I talked about creating wildflower meadows yeah. in my last podcast and how important to get that tight grass yeah. structure up in the first instance really is. So, you know, as, as good as pigs are at breaking up this type of habitat that we're on today, which is kind of semi-improved grassland, they also wouldn't be the right type of animal for every habitat because if it doesn't need that level of disturbance and disruption, then they could possibly do more harm than good. So it's, it's not the answer to everything, but in this setting, it's definitely, definitely a good thing. Yeah, yeah. Be really interested to see in spring what comes up yeah. out here yeah we'll, we'll be here watching so yeah, yeah i think maybe. as well that it's um about remembering that they are bringing something that you can't necessarily predict so yeah. this is not if you want a wildflower meadow you would follow that set procedure that yeah. we've obviously talked about yeah. on the previous podcast um you know the, we are not using the pigs to prepare the ground for something yeah. else yeah we are using the pigs because see what as a proxy for something that's missing from the landscape yeah so um so yeah, it's a, it's about disrupting this um, sort of monoculture state yeah, that, yeah. that the sheep essentially several years of sheep grazing has created. Yeah, so. yeah. And like you said earlier, earlier, it's that kind of unpredictability. Like you know, man doesn't know everything, no. and um, sometimes when you just let nature have a go, yeah. then um, as you say, you, you can get an outcome you really wouldn't have necessarily predicted, but that can be so beneficial. So yeah. I've spent twenty years trying to manage nature reserves based on spreadsheets and <laughs> parameters and targets. And so to just put some animals out, it's it's extremely liberating, I and bet. it's ex- so much more exciting. And yeah, it's it's really really interesting. Fabulous. Well, thank you so much for your time today, you guys. I really thank really you. appreciate it. And um, yeah, I'll uh, make sure I let you know when the podcast is out. And huge thanks again to Laura and Elliot for taking time out of their really hectic schedule to speak to me. I have a feeling we will be speaking to them again in future episodes. Next, I'm going to talk about COP26. Now, this conference of the parties takes place from the 1st to the 12th of November this year in the UK. It's held here this year because the UK was successful in their bid to host it. This means that they have taken on the presidency. Now, Glasgow was chosen as the location in part due to the city's commitment to sustainability. The spotlight is now on the UK to provide global leadership that raises ambition and turns promises into desperately needed action to tackle climate change. Why is a conference about climate change important for nature and wildlife? Well, simply because climate change and the decline of nature are interlinked issues that really must be tackled side by side. Climate change is driving nature's decline and nature's decline is feeding into climate change. It's a vicious cycle and one that is only going to end badly if we don't do something about it. As hosts to the upcoming conference, our leaders have a unique opportunity to put the spotlight on this issue and to really put their money where their mouth is. Will they stand up and do what's necessary or will it be all talk? Will they set a global example worth following or be all hot air? Only time will tell, but what do we want to see them doing? Is simply stopping burning fossil fuels the answer? Well, it is part of it, but not the whole solution. We must also protect and develop habitats that we know sequester carbon, such as wetlands and seagrass meadows. We need to see our leaders giving a boost to more sustainable farming methods and incentivising farmers to manage their land for nature-based solutions. 
We need to plant more trees and not just large monoculture plantations that could be at risk of disease or climate disruption. We need a mix of resilient and diverse trees, and that in turn will also provide varied habitats for other organisms alongside the work they do holding on to carbon. We also need to restore peatlands, stop farming from taking place on them and ban the removal and sale of peat completely. Did you know that peatlands are the world's biggest terrestrial carbon store? They sequester more carbon annually than every other type of vegetation on the planet combined. Mind-blowing. So when you consider that fact, how could our government say they're taking climate change seriously if they are not willing to step in and intervene to protect this vital habitat? Let's see if they do. And while on the subject of protecting valuable habitats, I'd like to mention this month's petition. It's one that focuses on the town where I grew up, and that is Portsmouth. Now, I lived in Portsmouth for most of my childhood before moving to London for university and then more recently on to Devon. So it's a town really close to my heart and where I still have plenty of friends and family. Right now, Portsmouth City Council plans to develop one of the last wild corners of Portsmouth Harbour into a super peninsula by draining and concreting over protected intertidal habitat. Then they want to build 3,500 new houses and a 1 million square foot marine hub on a reclaimed coastal floodplain. Now, this special area is already protected as a site of special scientific interest, a special protection area and a Ramsar site in recognition of the value for wildlife. So if you'd like to sign a petition in support of protecting this valuable site, you can find a link in the episode notes or in the blog that accompanies this podcast. And what frustrates me even more is that so many of the housing developments we see springing up around the country aren't even being planned in an environmentally friendly way. If we saw large green spaces left wild within developments or community gardens being created alongside zero carbon heating electricity systems, it would at least somewhat lessen the blow. But instead, we still see new builds crammed together with minimal thought to nature and with electricity and heating systems that rely on fossil fuels being burnt to run them. Because, of course, they are the cheapest to install. How does this make sense when you consider that we should really be starting to mitigate, not continuing to contribute to, climate change and nature's decline? Anyway, I'll jump off my soapbox now before I lose track of where I am and this becomes a two-hour rant. So that just about brings us to the end of this month's Devon Wildlife Warden podcast. So for now, farewell. I hope you're having a great autumn and you feel inspired to do something, however small, for your local wildlife. This podcast was narrated and produced by me, Emily Marbay, with music by Upbeat Whistle. <laughs>